you turn tonight to Genesis chapter 2, as we continue here uh, in this incredible account, the foundational account, and the account by which we need to understand, in essence, why God would choose to create the universe in the first place. You see, there's a lot of questions in Genesis, and I believe that's fully intentional from the Lord, because when you ask the right questions, you're open to, to hearing the answer. And there's a huge question that comes up here in chapter 2 as we continue tonight in verses 15 through 17 and a study that I've entitled Man's Free Will. This is perhaps one of the most difficult subjects uh, that the church has ever talked about, written about, uh, theologically battled over. Does man, in fact, have a free will? And if man does have a free will, why? And if man does have a free will and there is a reason for it, what are we supposed to do with it? In other words, the question is this. And I want you to ask yourself this question seriously. You see, because very often, because we're getting to Adam and his responsibility, because in Adam all die. Amen? The reason for that is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have, in essence, a sin nature that has come to us not by our own doing, but we inherited it. Sin came through Adam, the capacity to sin. However, the functionality of sin and the reality of sin is on you. But you have been given the capacity to sin, the desire to sin, in essence, the choice to sin. And so people often make the case, well, God wasn't fair. Why didn't he just make us fully perfect? And by fully perfect, what they actually mean is incapable of sinning. That question gets answered tonight. And so I pray that the Lord speak to us through his word. Let's pray together and ask him to do exactly that. Father, we thank you tonight that we can ask the most difficult questions of you and know that when we ask according to your will, you'll answer. And Lord, your word declares to us very plainly if we lack wisdom that we are to ask of you and you give liberally to all who ask. And so God, we're asking tonight that you would help us to understand this incredible gift and at the same time, this thing that's very problematic, and that is our own free will. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and God's people all said, amen. How many of you watch NFL? Raise your hands. Or NBA. You watch sports of any kind. Most of you are familiar then with a process known as free agency. Free agency is when a player reaches either the end of his contract or is negotiated into his contract a period of time where he can or she can determine for themselves the conditions whereby they will continue to play any given sport. Let's take football as an example. So someone enters into free agency, they begin to make choices about what city they're going to live in, what team they're going to play for, what offense they're going to run, what defense they'll be behind all of those things. Free agency is, in essence, a moral choice by an individual to determine the conditions whereby they will accept employment from an NFL team. That's what it is. Man has been gifted, and notice what I said, gifted, with moral free agency by God. It's very clear from the totality of Scripture that we are quite capable of making decisions for ourselves. And that we do not, God does not force us to see things His way. He provides us with sufficient information to understand that there is a proper way and there is a not proper way. There is a right way, there is a wrong way. There is a righteous way and an unrighteous way to make decisions. Because Scripture plainly declares, to him who knows it's sin, it's sin. Or another way to understand that, if you know to do good and do not do it, it is sin to you. You see, God has given us the capacity to make choices. 
He has also given us the ability to understand the parameters whereby those choices are being made. And he does so for a very specific reason. Verse 16, Genesis chapter, excuse me, verse 15, Genesis chapter 2. And then the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, the covenant name for the Lord. He's not just Elohim, but he's the master. Always remember that when those two words are used together, this is the covenant name of God. This is the relational name of God. This is not just God being the master, not just the sovereign God, but the God who desires to also be your Lord, your master, to kind of tell you how your life ought to go, and you respond to that. And then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And I want you to notice very quickly that man was not ever designed to sit around idle. From the very beginning, man was placed in the garden with purpose. And we see, as the totality of Scripture reminds us, that when mankind has too much time on his hands, we have a tendency to get into trouble. And so productivity, in essence, has been designed into our spiritual DNA so that God gives us things to do, and they're meaningful and purposeful. They give us a joy and fulfillment. And in this case, Adam is placed, in essence, into the garden to be the gardener, to be the caretaker, most importantly, to be a steward. And a steward owns nothing. A steward is an overseer. A steward takes what is someone else's, and manages it for the benefit of the owner. And so Adam is being placed as steward over the creation, right into the garden to tend it and to keep it, those two words working together. In other words, there's part of it God designed. The trees will grow, the plants will grow, the rivers will flow. But Adam has been given the opportunity now, in essence, to use his creativity, just like he places within you spiritual gifts, the opportunity to use your creativity to take what God has created and to use it for God's glory and also for good, to do something wonderful with it. And then the Lord God commanded the man. Now notice he places him in the garden first, first and gives him something to do. And it is after that that there is a commandment made of Adam. And I want you to take very close stock extreme attention to how the Lord works these things together. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So if there are nine billion trees, Adam has given exactly one tree that he cannot eat of. Now, I don't know about you, but if I went into Vaughn's and you said you can have everything in here except this one item that's on aisle 14 on the second shelf. I'm going to be pretty happy about that. I'm going to be very thankful for it. I'm not really going to be complaining about it, but I'll tell you what's going to happen in my little pea brain. I'm going to be really interested as to what's on that aisle. And I'm going to go down there and I'm going to look at that item on the shelf and I'm going to cross my arms and I'm going to probably touch it. I'm going to probably take it off the shelf. I'm going to smell it. I'm going to put it back on there. I'm going to walk away and then I'm going to come back to it and I'm going to repeat that process a few times. Because we've been given free will. We have the capacity to not follow God's direction. And inherent within us is the opportunity to use all knowledge either for good or for evil. Knowledge in and of itself is inherently neutral. It is what you do with knowledge that determines whether it is good or evil. Just because you know something, you can know something that one of, we, we might call disgusting. You, you can know things that are not pleasant, 
But that doesn't mean it's sin to you. That simply means that you know that that is a disgusting thing. You can actually use that information correctly if it stimulates you to stay away from the disgusting thing. Amen? That's moral free agency in view. It is not that you know something, it's what you do with what you know. Very important that you look at Adam's choices as if you were the one that got stuck in the Garden of Eden on that first day. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And I want you to be very careful here because the original Hebrew language renders that tree of the knowledge of good and evil the two words, good and evil, are linked together in such a way that the good and evil contrast one another. They are not separate subjects. Everybody follow what I'm saying there? Again, this is a very important concept because, again, you can know good and you can know evil. They are not different. They are comparative. And so what God is doing is he's placing in view something that Adam previously did not have in his purview. He had zero capacity to understand the relationship between good and evil. He simply knew. And he knew, up to this point, only good. Now he not only is going to know evil, which in and of itself would not be evil, but he's going to know evil in relationship to good. In other words, he's going to have a choice. Because the choice that we have is what we do with what is good and what we do with what is evil. And it is very often the contrast between those two things that's the most beneficial tool that we have in determining the choice. And so here in the garden, Adam is created perfect in a perfect environment and he's given exactly one thing that he cannot do. Notice what God says. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's break this down. You see, Adam had been created in the image of God, amen? In God's very own image and likeness has Adam been created. There's a couple of things that that must mean. Number one, Adam was created as an eternal being. And we'll get to that towards the end of the study tonight. Mankind was not ever created to die. Mankind was created eternal. And to this day, every last human being will live eternally. The only question is where. So in God's purpose and plan, he created us eternally just as he is eternal. And so what comes into view now is why would God do that? What would God's motivation and what would God's purpose be for that? He he puts Adam in an environment. I'd like to live in the Garden of Eden, wouldn't you? We know what's coming next. We'll cover that next. Adam is stuck in a place where he gets to to tend this garden. he's, He's not out with a time clock. He's just wandering around the garden trimming trees and bushes. I happen to find it very relaxing to to sit around in our backyard And I even like picking dead leaves off my plumerias. There's something therapeutic about tending a garden. It doesn't even seem like work. And time goes by and all, all you know is it looks beautiful. So Adam wasn't exactly made to go grind in a factory someplace. But he was given purpose. He was given the ability to go do something that was meaningful. God stuck him in an environment that you and I can only long for. Imagine the Hawaiian Islands on steroids. Beautiful garden environment. It's the headquarters of the meeting place with the creator of the universe. In essence, he's tending God's garden. And I don't know what God is fully capable of. We're going to see that one day. But I've been to some beautiful places in my life. You stand on the Kalalau lookout on the north shore of the island of Kauai and look out over the the North Pacific 
And the contrast between the green mountains and the valley that's verdant below you and the ocean that's aquamarine and the clouds coming, you're just like, wow. If God can do that with something that he's going to roll up like a scroll one day and create a new one, if this is kind of like his leftovers, so to speak, of his creative ability in this time, I can only imagine what it looked like in the garden before the flood destroyed everything because man mistreated both himself and other humankind and also the the planet itself. All I know is Adam had a pretty good gig. It wasn't, it wasn't drudgery. He didn't wake up going, oh, no, i got to go to the garden again. You know, like we do. It's like, oh, i got to get on the freeway again. i got to go put my time in. Another few years and I'll finally be able to retire. We, you know, we think of those things because it's hard sometimes, amen? I don't think Adam was thinking that. I think he got up every day going, what's God going to show me next? But God did give him a challenge. No physical need was withheld. No mental need was withheld. No spiritual need was withheld. Nothing was withheld from Adam. He had everything anyone could want. And of course, just exactly as Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, to whom much is given much will be required. When God does great things in our lives, when he commits unto us, Adam has just been given the care of God's precious garden. He's also going to be given the care of the animals. He's going to be given all kinds of responsibility. And when God gives us responsibility, when he gives us authority, then he expects us to exercise that authority in a godly way. Leads us to a big question. You ever ask yourself, why did God create man at all? Be honest. You ever ask yourself, why in the world did God create man? After all, we are kind of a headache, amen? Aren't we? Well, maybe you're not. I am. I've given God some migraines in my life. I'm sure figuratively speaking, God has woken up on a few mornings and go, oh no, he's up again. I'm sure I have, because I've not always lived my life in a way that's pleasing to God. And so it does beg the question, what was God doing? What was his purpose? I think there's an actual very clear reason that Scripture points out to us. I believe it's extremely clear. Why did God even create the universe and make exactly one planet? This one, that's habitable. We have now been searching the cosmos for the better part of 50 years. And we have not found a single planet anywhere within our purview from any type of telescope, radio or otherwise, that gives us any belief that there are any other habitable planets in our universe. We've found planets that are kind of, sort of, maybe possible, but none with all of the things necessary, none with an atmosphere that's oxygen and nitrogen, none with a planet that's mostly covered with water, none with the very specific temperature that's necessary for human life. You realize that the outside temperature of this planet is perfect for human life within about four degrees. Fahrenheit. This planet was put almost dead in the middle of the known universe, almost dead in the middle of one of the arms of one of our, of our galaxy, and it is extremely unique. God must have been doing something. Why would he do such a thing? Because it surely couldn't have happened by chance. Otherwise, there'd be billions of them out there. Our own Milky Way galaxy has more than 100 billion stars in it. And we can see well into the next galaxies that are near us with some clarity. You know, we can't find another planet that's habitable. Can't find one someplace close to us within the first star system. 
between here and Alpha Centauri, there's nothing that even comes close. Yeah, we're jokingly looking at Mars going, you know, yeah, maybe we could live there. It's nearly absolute zero on the cold side of Mars. For those of you that don't know what that is, that means that all life ceases. The motion of atoms and molecules stop. That's not going to be too good. The other side is hot enough to make your blood boil. I'm pretty sure there's not any life on that planet. Not as we know it. God created us and he created this place. And he did so with purpose. We covered this in Romans chapter 9 when we were there not long ago. Verse 19 says, but you will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will, speaking of God? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Can I remind you, we don't have the right to actually question God's motivations. We actually don't have the right to question what he does. We can ask questions, but ultimately we are to receive what he has done and to accept why he's done it. So in that sense, even if he gives us the answer and we don't like it, it's not like we can do anything about it because you can't resist his will. That's what Romans 9 says. And he goes on to say, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? I love this passage as it relates to Genesis. Why did you make me with a free will? Why did you create the, the tree that is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did you do that for, God? You can almost see Adam, well, if you had just not made the tree. You can almost see Eve. Well, if you just hadn't made the, let the snake be there. I mean, come on. And why didn't you just leave it perfect? How come you gave us choice in the first place? That was unfair. Was it? Or was it love? Was it unfair or was God doing the one thing he had to do to validate his love for us and our love for him? Does the potter not have power over the clay? Romans 9.21 says, and from the same lump to make a vessel of honor and the other, of a dis- uh, the other dishonor. Doesn't God have the right to do whatever he wants to do? He's God. So let's look at what the answer might be because I think it's very clear it's love. What was God doing? 1 John chapter 4. You might want to mark it. You might want to go there. And it says there in verse 16 that the primary motivator, the primary driving factor, the primary thing that God thinks of when he thinks of you, when he thinks of me, when he thinks of us, the reason for his being, and actually the single easiest way to define him in totality is found here in these verses, verses 16 to 19. Uh, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. John makes a statement. He, in essence, says if you want to know who God is, what God is, how he functions, how he operates, in essence, if you would like to try and define him in a single word, God is love. And, of course, he's using the the word agape here, or agapeo. Self-sacrificing, undemanding, love that dares to, to be hurt, spat upon, rejected God's love, the love that Christ gave us on Calvary's cross. And he who abides in love abides in God. In other words, if you're going to live in God, the word abide means to live in, to set up home in. If you're going to abide or live in the depths of what God has for you and has for me and has for the church, has for his children, then you will abide in love. You'll live in love. You have to. God's love. 
It's the house rules of God's house. You don't have a choice. There's no such thing as an unloving Christian. There are Christians who are unloving, but at the core, we are love. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He didn't say you might kind of sort of someday develop some love. He says you are known by the way you love each other because God first loved us. It's not an option. We don't get the option to be unloving Christians. We're supposed to love as he loves us. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. In verse 17, 1 John 4. For love has been perfected among us in this. This is, this is how you can see it in action and tell that it's real. Notice that it's genu- genuine. That we have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. How is God in this world? God is love. So we approach the day of judgment. That's why the loveless church at Laodicea was such an anathema to God. God is love. He wants to be represented well. He wants his kids to look like he looks. Act like he acts. Speak like he speaks. Love like he loves. That doesn't mean that we don't say tough things. I said a few of those this morning, amen? If you were here, I, I, I had to say some tough things. I hope, I pray that I said those things in a way that anyone who heard them knew God loves you. God loves us. God has a plan for our lives, but he's allowed us some choices to make, and we can choose to not make those choices correctly. But he goes on to say, for there is no fear in love. What was the motivating factor? And we're going to see it here as we get to chapter 3. What happened to Adam and Eve? They began to fear God. They began to be ashamed of their choices. They began to think perhaps God didn't actually love them. They believed the lie of the enemy. That's God surely said. John had it right. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. Well, let's all admit God has perfect love. Amen. Perfect love casts out all fear. Why? Because fear involves torment. God didn't put us on this planet planet to torment us. He didn't put us here to endlessly test us. He didn't put us here to make us miserable. He didn't bring you into existence so he could sit back like some mad evil scientist with you under a glass dome going, ha, 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 ha. You know, some people think that. It's like, you know, what's he going to do to me next? Fear involves torment. That's not love, and God is love. So if you're being tormented, it's not from God. That would be the enemy of your souls that's tormenting you. That would be Satan. That would be his minions. That would be the demonic host, uh, that principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, that's what they do. That's not what God does. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love because real love requires trust. You can't both trust God and fear God in this way. And this is the, the wrong kind of fear. The other kind of fear is reverence. You can reverence God, and we're supposed to reverence God. It's the beginning of understanding and knowledge, wisdom. But this kind of fear is that God somehow has an evil motivation. Somehow he's doing something kind of despicable. Maybe he's being capricious. Perhaps he's just waiting for that day when you fail that one more time. I used to think that as a young Christian. I was absolutely sure that I was going to one day be walking down the street and God was just going to barbecue me on the spot. Because he was going to finally remember everything that I'd ever done in my entire life and I was going to pay the price for it myself. You see, I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand God's love. I understood I needed a Savior and I surely didn't want to go to hell. But I didn't understand the love. And we need to understand the love. 
We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The love that you have for God started with God. He is love. We were created in his image, and thereby we actually have the capacity to love like God loves. We also have that born into us. We don't just have the capacity to sin. Sometimes people say, well, you know, all I think about sin all the time. Well, that's probably because you have not developed the love. You haven't put time and effort into it. You see, whichever dog you feed, that one's going to get strongest. And if you feed the one that bites, you're going to get bit. You've got to feed the love side. God created us with great intentions and, and wonderful pleasure. He created us with the capacity to have fellowship with him. He created us for the purpose of love. Now, does this mean God was lonely? No, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all coexisted before time. So there was some fellowship. But God, in his triune wonder, created us to share in that. It's almost as if you could see God sitting in heaven, in in the councils of heaven, going, we need to share this love. And we are the recipients of that sharing of that love. God first loved us. That should blow your mind. You should be sitting in your pews going right now, God loves me. That's why I love that kid's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. That's a Bible study on steroids right there, folks. That's truth is what that is. Jesus does love us. God loves us. The Holy Spirit loves us. And God intends for us to understand that. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says what it says. But God, amen, who is rich in mercy, makes us sit together in heavenly places. Read the whole of chapter 2. You want to get blown away? Check out your bank account. Look at what you've been given in Christ Jesus. It's mind-boggling. So what was God doing? He was creating us with a purpose. Creating us with meaning. And in order for that purpose and meaning to be real, it must be reciprocal and it must be volitional. If God does not give Adam a choice, if there is nothing for Adam to choose... If there is no distinguishing between good and evil, if Adam is simply put into this environment that is a little slice of heaven and things made so wonderful, if God's intent is to share the love that he's created us with and wants to share with us in fellowship, if he just makes things so good, then one could say, I'm not sure I actually love him. Love must be validated by our choices. It has to be volitional. It has to be you have decided to love. If you're here and you're not married, I, I can tell you one way to not find your husband or wife. Walk up to him and, I command you, love me. You are commanded because I have chosen you. And I'm acting sovereignly on your life right now and you shall love me. I'm going to make you rich. Love me. I'm going to buy you a new home. Love me. It ain't going to work, is it? Why? For the same reason that arranged marriages don't work. You can't force someone to love another person. It has to be your choice. It has to come from your heart. It has to be mutual, it has to be based on trust, and it must be reciprocal. 
Unrequited love is one of the saddest things in the world, amen? You read that story where one person loves another person and loves them unconditionally, but that person does not love them back. It's a very sad situation. God didn't create us to just force us to love him. He wanted to have a love relationship with him, and in order for that love to be real, you have to have also the choice to not love him. If you do not have the choice to not love him, then there's no way that you can say that you actually do love him. That's part of what it means to have free will. You see, if Adam's able to make the right moral choice, necessarily he must be able to make the wrong moral choice. If there's no choice, then there's no choice. You can look at it as an equation, time plus choices equals your volition. What you do with your time and what you do with your choices is your voluntary action. In essence, you're saying, this is what I believe. That's why James said, faith without works is? Why is that? Because your time plus your choices equals your volition. That's what you truly believe. That's why a Christian who says, well, I don't really care much to please God, is not a Christian at all in my view. Because your time plus your choices equals your volition, which also equals who you love. You see, God's putting into a very clear view for us that the reason we have to have choice is so that we can also choose wrongly. Because you need to put your time and your choices to the test. If you're married, you know this is true, amen? You make all the wrong choices repetitively, you're sending a message to your spouse, right? But when you use your time and your choices and they point towards this is the direction that I'm going and that says love, then that indicates where your heart's at. That indicates that there is true love there. If you do nothing in your relationship to say that I love you, then one has to guess whether there's any love at all. God does this with Adam. He says, I want to give you the opportunity to make these choices, to validate your love, so that even in this sinlessness that you currently live in, I have not forced you to love me, love me by giving you an environment that is real easy to choose to just simply do the right thing. In essence, Adam goes on a little bit of a probationary period here in the garden. It's like, I'm going to give you some time, and I'm going to give you some choices. And what you do with your time and what you do with your choices will determine whether you really want to love me or not. Now, praise God that he doesn't make that the end all and he applies grace to our lives when we make bad choices, amen? But it does validate your love. That's why faith has to have also works with it. That's how we, in essence, prove those things are true in our lives. doesn't mean that's how we're saved. This means they point the direction that we really are going that's why meaningful work and right choices go together. <laughs> the history of mankind and idleness is not a good thing. Amen? Case in point, the great prophet David. He's at home, the story tells us, at a time when kings went out to war. They spent time in battle, and so what happens? Instead of doing what he was supposed to be doing, he's staying home. What, what happens? That idle mind becomes the devil's playground, and what happens to him? It's there that he sees Bathsheba. It's there that that whole process begins. It was actually idleness that led him to that. It was not being productive. It was sitting around trying to wait for somebody to do something good in his life. I don't know whether he was waiting for the servants to bring him his next tray of grapes. I have no idea. But I know this. The scriptures say he was sitting home doing nothing when he was supposed to be at war. Supposed to be leading his men. And so God gives Adam a little bit of work to do. 
And I want you to notice that it's, it's tend and take care of. It's not grinded out every day. God didn't install a time clock in the garden. Okay, well, you know, it better be here at 7 o'clock. He gave him meaningful, productive things to do. Perfect world. He gave him the right kind of labor. You know, when you look at the book of Proverbs, and, and you can check these chapters out for yourself later, but Proverbs chapter 14, 18, 19, and 22 all uh, contain passages for all of their labor, there's profit. An idle chatter leads to poverty. Laziness casts a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. He who's slothful in his work will ultimately end in the hand of the destroyer. When you see a man who excels at his work, you'll see him stand before kings. There's, there's this admonition for us to take our time and invest it. Use it for good. And so Adam was given that opportunity. And furthermore, he was the world's first conservationist. He was eco-friendly. He was green. Adam was really green. He was a gardener. He, he was given a very pleasant thing to do. And the only thing that he could not do was eat of one tree. He could eat of any herb. He could do whatever he wanted. And I, I know there was a bacon tree there somewhere. <laughs> and a ham bush. And probably racks of ribs that hung off of something. I don't know. He may have been a vegetarian, but it didn't taste like no tofu burger, okay? No, I don't know. But he he could eat even of the tree of life if he wanted to. Interestingly enough, God doesn't tell him you can't eat of that one. There's a reason for it. He's already going to live eternally. He's already got eternal life. And were it not for his sin, he would have continued in that eternal life. He would have never died. And Adam's life, we're going to see, he lives over 900 years. So God still gave him a, a very long life, even though he messed up. There was one rule, one choice, and that's it. Does that give you any indication of exactly how evil we can be at times? How hard-headed we can be at times? But again, that choice has meaning. It's not in the vacuum that that choice is given to Adam. It's given in the context of love. God says to Adam, look, you can do anything and everything while you're here. You can eat of anything that you want. You're going to have a great time. You're going to, you know, you think the guys that do the topiary at Disneyland are good. I guarantee you Adam was really good at this. You know, he's shaping giraffe trees and all. I don't know what he was doing. But I know he enjoyed it. Because God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And in a perfect environment, I can absolutely guarantee you that Adam was enjoying what God had created for him. He wasn't sitting around, oh, no, not another day in the garden. You know, I hope I don't have to go out there again. And by the way, I don't believe there was a single weed, no gophers, no mosquitoes, no poison oak, no poison ivy. There might have been a section for cactus. I like cactus. I don't know, because it does kind of hurt. So maybe there was no cactus. I don't know. But I know this. There were no briars, no thorns, no thistles. He wasn't wandering around going, man, the weeds in this thing. He was going, I don't know what to do with these giant flowers. I think I'll shape them into something that looks like a cloud. I don't know. But I know this. It was idyllic. And he was wandering around going, this is crazy nice. And all he had to do, simplest test imaginable, is believe God by faith. He had to trust God. Now hear this well, because faith is an essential for your relationship with God. You cannot be saved without it. Grace comes to you as a result of faith. You have always had to have faith. And so what does Adam have to have? Adam has to have faith. He actually has to believe that God has told him the truth. You cannot eat of that tree right there. 
It's just one. But you've got to trust me on this. You're going to have to believe by faith. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. Stay away from that tree. Hence my little analogy of me in the grocery store checking out what's on aisle 14. So our human mind, in order for us to make that choice be something that's valid, there's got to be something in there that says, hmm, I wonder why he said that. I tell you it's okay to question God. It's okay, provided that it drives you back to God. That you don't question his integrity. That you don't question necessarily his motivation. But you simply say, I don't understand this, God. That's when you ask us, Lord, could you show me what you're doing here? Why you're doing it this way? I, I know that you love me. You see, that requires faith. That requires trust. That's what's in view here. There was no magical substance in the tree. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil laid side by side. And Adam could now, if he tasted of this fruit, go, this is good and this is evil. You can almost look at it like a shadow. You can look at it like the difference between light and dark. You see, you can't appreciate light unless there's dark, right? If it's just all light, you have no appreciation for the light whatsoever. But when you have shadow, when you have darkness, when you have clouds, then you can appreciate the light. The same is true here. He's saying, look, I don't want you to taste of this because I don't want you to know experientially between good and evil. I want you to only know good. You can have knowledge, but I don't want you to lay good and evil alongside. Because the moment you do, you'll die. The moment you do, you'll understand sin. And God gives every last one of us that probation period. It's when you're first born. You don't have knowledge of sin. You're not wandering around going, man, I know that was wrong. That age of innocence, we call it childhood. Age of accountability is another way that people look at it. The very thing that David understood very well when his son, born in that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, when that child died, David exclaimed very clearly, he shall not come to me, but I shall go to him. He, he knew where that baby went. Because it was not the baby's fault. It was David's fault. God never punishes one person for another person's sin. You will bear any type of repercussions for your sin will be borne by you. Other people may go through circumstances in their life that are a direct result. But if there's anything eternal to be meted out, you get to bear that. God's the source of life. He's a source of communion. He's a source of connection. And in that sense, when he created Adam, he didn't create Adam to die. Adam wasn't created to die. You weren't created to die. And so now that sin is in the world, now that you can make those choices, now that Adam was able to make that choice and choose not to sin at all, and now we have the opportunity, and here's the beauty of this, every last human being is given the exact same opportunity as Adam. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose life rather than death. Every human being will have the opportunity to make that final choice for themselves. Adam didn't make it for you. The only thing Adam passed along to you is the knowledge of good and evil simultaneously. That is the knowledge of sin. That is not you being forced to sin. Very different. You see, I can know about something and choose not to do it. Amen? But if I choose to do it, what I'm saying is volitionally, that's what I want. I'm making a choice. So God asks us to choose him. God asks us to love him. God asks us, in essence, in order to reverse the curse of Adam... What does God ask us to do? Jesus says it in John 3. We'll get there shortly. You must be born again. Because in Adam all die, and the only way to escape that is to be born again. 
It's exactly why Revelation chapter 20 says there is a second death. So if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. And that death is not permanent. It is from this life into eternal life with God. So God's been not only completely fair, he's actually activated the very thing that validates your love for him and his love for you. He's given you free will. You get to choose. You get to say, I love God. God doesn't force anyone to love him, but he gives everyone the opportunity to do so. You see, we weren't created. God didn't make Adam and say, you know, man, I can't wait until you finally die so I can make something new. That isn't what happened. Death, decay, the laws of entropy, thermodynamics, those things didn't exist when God created Adam. Those things came about because of Adam's sin. Adam made that choice and death, Scripture says, entered into the world. Entropy became a reality even though Adam's body continued to function biologically for 900 years, the moment he ate of that tree, he died spiritually and necessitated a second birth, repentance. That's why God's going to give him an opportunity to repent in the garden. Adam, who told you you were naked? That's not God asking a question because he needs information. That's God saying, Adam, you want to tell me what's up here? You want to invite me to be back into your life as Lord? Or do you want to hang on to your sin? you want to keep the shame that you currently have and the guilt? Or would you like to be free of that? The same thing that Christ answers, asks of us today. Do you want, you want to keep your sin or do you want to be saved? Do you want to be redeemed? You also began to die physically. Even though it would take 900 years, he began to die physically at that very moment. And that same act that Adam took as the root of all sin today, it's man making wrong choices. That's it. Not somebody, you know, with a gun pointed at you and forcing you to make those wrong choices. You make the wrong choices yourself. Oh, there can be external pressure to make those choices, to be sure. That's why I preached the message I did this morning. We don't want to give the enemy any help. We don't want to pressurize an already pressurized situation even further. But see, the truth is, God actually wanted us in his garden. He wanted a love-filled garden. I, I think Adam was the first hippie. You can almost see him in tie-dye, wandering around the garden, a little peace sign around his neck. I don't know. Because our word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, yeah? And it's peace with the soul. That's exactly what God wanted. He wanted peace with Adam's soul. He wanted Adam to know that kind of peace. Why do you suppose the prophet Isaiah, amongst the other things that he said there in chapter 9 about the, the coming Messiah, why do you think he said he will be the prince of peace? He'll be the father of eternity. Everlasting father. Why, why would he say that? Because that's exactly what God has always wanted. There's never been a moment of human history where God did not want us in his garden. He wants everybody in his garden. That's why he says to us now, if you will believe on my name, if you believe in the only begotten Son of God, you will be saved. You will be born again. You will, in that sense, reverse the curse. Because God wants you in the garden. And ultimately, he's going to take out the thorns, and he's going to take out the weeds, and he's going to take out the thistles. He's going to deliver you from that desert of death into eternal life, wherein is the presence of the Lord and fullness of joy. He's always wanted us in his garden. But Adam had to choose that for himself. Otherwise, God just forced him into it, and it's not love. There was no relationship without Adam having that choice. 
And as he eats of this tree, now Adam is going to be able to compare. He's going to be able to lay side by side, one against the other. He's going to be able to see here's being alive and good, and here is shame and death and evil. And he's going to look at it, and he's going to make those choices, and he's going to say, well, I guess I want to be able to choose for myself these other things over here. You see, that choice has to be there because God wants to relate to him in love. And so God simply says, don't eat of that tree. In essence, it's the same choice that we still have today. It's a life or death choice. That awareness. When people come to me and say, wow, you know, I didn't really know that was sin. You know what? I actually believe them. Most of the time, when people come to me and they say, I, I really didn't see that. I had a lot of people say that today. I really didn't think of it that way. That's okay. That's what grace is for, amen? That's what forgiveness is about. That's us recognizing and turning. That's what repentance is. It's us seeing and agreeing with God. Very often people, well, you know, this whole repentance thing, I, I don't really feel like I need to repent. Our president said that. He actually said, I don't know of anything in my life that I ever needed to repent of. Oh, I, I pray he doesn't believe that on an eternal level. Because there's plenty to repent of. You could start with pride. Thinking, thinking that you're sinless already. Oh, that's a dangerous place. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I want to close with this. Worship team's going to come back up. Pastors are going to come forward and be available for prayer. But Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, says this, But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Notice there's a choice there. God didn't say you're already evil and, you know, you're not going to be able to help yourself. And this world is so terrible, unfortunately, I'm really sorry about this, but, you know, man, the environment you live in, you're just done. That isn't what he says. He says, yes, there's evil in the world, but I'm going to give you the capacity to turn from it. And that's what I want you to do. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over in the Jordan and go in and possess and I call all heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing, and therefore, choose life. Choice is yours. Choice is mine. That both you and your descendants may live. Still the choice. That's the choice that exists for all of us every day. Now, fortunately, once you've said yes to the grace of God, your sins are forgiven you. But until you do that, you own them. You have to make that first choice and then choose to remind God how much you love him by living a life that's well-pleasing to him. You see, you need to be ashamed of your nakedness. We're going to see that coming up. That's why he says, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Oh boy, did Adam and ultimately Eve die in a whole bunch of ways they didn't see coming. I think they thought they were just going to physically die. They didn't physically die. But boy, did they suffer through shame and guilt and anguish. Broken fellowship, hurt and pain. God does not want that for you. Can I tell you that? God does not want that for you. God wants you in his garden. And all you've got to do is ask. And once you've invited him in, all you've got to do is choose this day whom you're going to serve. And Joshua wisely remembered in chapter 24 of his amazing book. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight.
that you've given us the marvelous gift of choice, free will, moral free agency. It helps us to be able to say with a whole heart, with our actions, with our mind, that we love you. And we praise you for your great wisdom, eternal wisdom, that didn't just plop us in a garden and make us robots. Lord, you gave us a part in loving you. Making that choice is the most important choice we'll ever make. And I pray tonight, if there's anyone here that's never chosen to love you, never chosen to invite you in and ask you to be their Savior and Lord, that God, tonight would be the night of salvation for them. God, help us to unabashedly and unashamedly proclaim our love for you by making good choices. God, we thank you for free will. We thank you for the choices that we do have to make. Pray that you'd help us to make them in a way that pleases you and honors you. We ask all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.